Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. It is a uh, delight to be with you. I, I feel like I'm a, a little bit on stage performing. Maybe, I, maybe this is a dramatic production of Isaiah. So it's not as exciting as if this were Ezekiel. There would be some very interesting acts in uh, in Ezekiel. Someone will have to dramatize some of those things, but not all of them. Um, yeah, so my name is Matthew. Uh, we've been, my family's been worshiping here since the beginning of the year. Epiphany was our first Sunday. Uh, I am, I, I most recently pastored uh, the First Baptist Church on the Upper West Side at 79th and Broadway. Some of you might know First Baptist as the place Redeemer used to meet on Sunday nights on the West Side. Uh, I think more, more people knew it for Redeemer than for First Baptist. Um, I was actually ordained in a non-denominational church, uh, so the Baptists were sort of happy to have me, uh, even though I wasn't a particularly good Baptist, and maybe that's why I'm not there anymore. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave that. Um, but it is a delight to be uh, with you. Uh, I'm married, my wife Kimberly and I, we have five children, uh, with whom you may have seen some scampering around, some who look like they could be my wife's sisters. Um, they range in age from 15 to 7, and uh, four girls and one boy. Um, and we live on Roosevelt Island. They're all actually on Roosevelt Island today. A friend of ours was being installed as pastor of uh, one of the churches on Roosevelt Island. So they were there to support her. And, uh, of course, I was happy to be here uh, worshiping with you and sharing about Isaiah. Uh, This is one of my favorite books in the scripture. Um, It has been since I was a child, uh, and and probably because so much of it is well known. Uh, You you go into some books of the Bible, and you could go, it feels like pages, chapters, and there's nothing familiar. Uh, Isaiah uh, has a lot of familiar passages in it. And as you heard coming in, I had the Messiah playing. Uh, some of you who are very astute and maybe listening very closely might have recognized I was skipping different tracks. I only put the 16 tracks uh, of Isaiah on the playlist. Uh, so it was just the, but it's 16 out of what, 53 vocal tracks are from Isaiah. And half, fully half of part one uh, comes from the book of Isaiah. So I've always wanted to preach for the book. And when I became pastor of a church, I thought, well, now's my opportunity. And so for about a year and a half, uh, we worked our way through uh, the book of Isaiah at roughly a chapter a week. I don't think I would do that again. Uh, The congregation is very gracious with that uh, approach. Uh, Some parts were just really, really hard. Uh, And then some parts I really felt like, let's slow down here. But um, I I didn't want to stay in Isaiah until the eschaton. Um, But it was 
fabulous going through it. And the book gained a tremendous amount of depth for me. It was, it was very flat previously, where it's like, ooh, here's a cool verse, or that's an amazing promise, or Isaiah 53, wow, right? Um, but then actually studying the book more thoroughly uh, and preaching on it and doing some writing on it, it gave a tremendous amount of depth that I hope to um, share with you today. But before we dive into the book itself, uh, I want to start by kind of taking a step back. Uh, as it appears in our English Bibles, Isaiah is the first of the prophets. Uh, the prophets in the English Bible is a collection of books that has two subsets. There, there are the major prophets and then the minor prophets. That's not to say that some prophets were more important than others. Like these are the major ones, know these ones. But the minor ones are just kind of extra credit on the test. Um, the, the, the words there refer to the length of the book. So you could say uh, that there were concise prophets and there were long-winded prophets. Maybe it would be another way of saying minor and major. Um, the five longer ones, Isaiah being the first uh, in, in our canon, canonical order, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Lamentations is included here as well with Jeremiah and Daniel. And then you have 12 minor prophets, which in the Hebrew Bible is just referred to as the 12. Uh, and and you'll, we'll be looking at those uh, in coming weeks. So you can think of the prophets in this sense of it being a collection of books. Another way you can think of the prophets is as a class of people. The prophets themselves, not the writings of the prophets, uh, but the prophets as a class of people. Now when we think about the prophets with respect to their calling, you can define a prophet like this. They were divinely called spokespeople who reminded the people about God and his covenant and who summoned them to repentance and faith. Okay, so they're divinely called. God is the one who picked the prophets out. It wasn't like, ooh, I want to I be a prophet, you know, I'll go get my BA in profiting, right, and, and then I'll go be a prophet. This was someone who was called by God. Uh, famously, Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, Jeremiah's call to be a prophet. Uh, Ezekiel's call in Ezekiel chapter 1. Isaiah's call and commission in Isaiah chapter 6. These are divinely called individuals, men and women, uh, in uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And what their job was, they were, there's a sense in which you could look at the prophets, not just the writing prophets, but all the prophets in the Old Testament. You could look at the prophets as uh, expositors of the book of Deuteronomy. Like their, their job was to take the covenant that was already written and agreed to, and what their job was in the succeeding generations and centuries, to take that stated covenant between God and his people, ending with the blessings and curses, and saying, whoa, people, we're way off track. We agreed to be like this, and yet our city is full of this. We agreed to worship the one true God, but you are going after other gods. So they were reminding people about God, who God is, and the covenant that God had made with them. And because of the, the, um, the disjuncture between the covenant and the way people were living, the, the prophets then went one step further and said, you need to repent and turn back to this God of our covenant, the God of our fathers. Uh, Hassel Bullock, in his introduction to the prophets, puts it like this. 
The prophets believed that the ideal for society was laid down in the covenantal legislation of the past. Justice and righteousness, which the law prescribed as the pillars of a theocratic society, were to be the order of every age. The present found its anchor in the past. So, when society deviated from the covenant, the prophets called Israel back to it and anticipated a future when everything would be reformed. And that might be the piece of the prophets that you think of first. Because when we think of a prophet, we're not necessarily thinking about the past. We're thinking about the future, right? Prophesying, predicting stuff, telling us what's going to happen. And certainly, the prophets did see into the future. We'll see this with Isaiah. But by and large, their future gaze was, can I put it this way? It was secondary to the gaze back at the covenant. We made, God made promises to us, we made promises to God, and we're not living up to our end of the bargain. And when they pointed to the future, they were pointing to a God who is going to do something remarkable, not just in fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, but of the earlier, earlier covenant, uh, the covenant with Abraham. So the classic way of talking about a prophet is that their job was not just foretelling, like predicting what the future is, but their job was forth-telling. They were telling people, this is the word of God. God has set me aside to tell you his message. And his message is rooted back in the old covenant, the covenant back in Deuteronomy. And the day is going to come, yes, when all will be right. But right now, I'm calling you to repent. So the history of these prophets goes really all the way back to Moses, who in many ways is the first Old Testament prophet. After him, you have other prophets like Samuel and Elijah, and Elisha, and Deborah. Uh, But many of them, apparently, were preachers, not writers. Now, it could be that Samuel wrote Joshua and Judges, and there's all kinds of scholarly conversation about that. Uh, But there comes a time when the the prophets seem to pivot from being non-literary to being writing prophets. And that begins particularly with Hosea and Amos, who predicted the downfall of northern Israel, and shortly thereafter comes Isaiah. Now let me give you an idea of when Isaiah lived. You see, Isaiah, the, kind of the midpoint of his ministry, roughly, is 725 years before Jesus. And this is all B.C., that's why it's, the numbers are flip-flopped. Uh, Moses and the Exodus, that was, depending on who you talk to, it was around 1440 or around 1290. David uh, is around the year 1000 BC. Elijah is about 150 years after that. And Isaiah is ministering uh, in this period about 700 to 750 years before Jesus. Now let me zoom in a little bit more on Isaiah's life, which I'm marking here with that blue oval. Okay, that's roughly Isaiah's life. Uh, 740 years before Jesus, the king of Judah, the king in Jerusalem, Uzziah, dies. Now that's a key moment if you're familiar with Isaiah's commission, that great chapter in Isaiah 6. Because he writes, in the year that 
King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai high and lifted up. I saw the Lord. Uh, whether his ministry, he might have already been engaged in ministry before then. Uh, he says, he identifies Uzziah as one of the kings he was ministering, uh, whose life, his ministry overlapped with his. Um, but then the northern tribes, of the northern kingdom of Israel, capital city Samaria, that falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And that Assyrian threat is going to play a huge role in the first part of the book of Isaiah, all the way into the, to chapter 37, uh, when Assyria is knocking on Jerusalem's door, and Hezekiah is now king, and is facing this threat of destruction. But as you see, Jerusalem would not fall for many more years. It would be 586, when not Assyria, but Babylon would come under King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the book of Daniel. Uh, and, and the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, that's 586. So Isaiah is long off the scene by the time Jerusalem eventually falls. And then, of course, a number of years later, under the Persians, the exiles return. Now, all of this history you'll find in the book of Isaiah. That's why I'm putting this up here. Just to give you an idea of where Isaiah fits into that timeline. He appears at a critical point in Jewish history. The opening verses tell us that he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, who's also known in the Hebrew scriptures as Azariah, uh, during the reign of Jotham, during the reign of Ahaz, and during the reign of Hezekiah. Now you say that gets us to chapter 39, but there are 66 chapters in the book. What about the rest of it? Well, the second half of the book of Isaiah is very different from the first half. Uh, the first half is largely historical, foretelling. And the second half is largely predictive, foretelling. The first half contains a lot of narrative, with some poetry included. The second half is almost entirely poetry, with hardly any narrative. The substance is different in the second half. The themes are different, and that actually leads some scholars to conclude that the book of Isaiah had multiple authors. That chapters 1 through 39 were written by Isaiah, and chapters 40 through 66 were written by 2nd Isaiah, or Deutero-Isaiah. Uh, it has no reference to Deuteronomy, it just means second, a second Isaiah. And some go even further and say, well, wait a second, that second part of the book, chapters 40 through 66, uh, there seems to be a division between those parts as well, between 40 through 55 and 56 through 66. So they posit, well, maybe there's three Isaiahs. Isaiah, Deutero, Trito. Three different authors for this book. In my estimation, I think the debate is kind of immaterial. Um, how important is it if there were multiple uh, Isaiahs writing here. I, I refer back to Ben's comments about the Pentateuch and Moses' authorship way back uh, when he talked about Genesis. Um, but I, I would offer this comment. Um, you know, it, it seems a bit narrow-minded to me to assume that different styles of writing necessitate different authors or different themes necessitate different authors. It's kind of like saying that it's impossible for one author to write children's books 
and science fiction and essays on medieval English literature and a collection of sermons. Like, no one author could do that, right? <clears throat> Except C.S. Lewis, right? And, and, and he did not have the benefit of divine inspiration, right? So I, I, I kind of look at it as a bit narrow-minded to say you've got to have different authors because there's different styles. I have no problem with saying there is one Isaiah and he wrote all of it. But whatever your conclusion is, what's really useful here is that there are, I think, three distinct chunks of the book. These three parts, I think, are worth exploring. It is a long book, so to have this kind of information can make the reading much easier and, I think, more enjoyable. So let me move away from the scholarly debate about this to the practicality of approaching the book. And, and let me say as well, uh, this is informal, so if you want more food, just get up and go get some, and it's fine. Okay, If you need something to drink, um, please don't feel like you're locked in your seats now that you know, I've taken off here. So how do we approach this book practically? And, and I, I'm especially thinking, like, how do I approach it as a reader of Scripture? And, and kind of my dream about this talk today is that you would actually be inspired to take up the book of Isaiah this week and read it. And hopefully I can give you enough tools to make it a useful, profitable exercise for you. So we're going to use this schematic here to take first a 10,000-foot view of the book of Isaiah, and then we're going to drop down to about 1,000 feet. I'm going to try not to get too far into the weeds. I like weeds, but I'm going to try to stay above them. And then we'll return uh, to the 10,000-foot view real, real briefly at the end. So there's three major parts, and I think each one unfolds a critical aspect of what God is like. I would, I would subdivide the book this way. That the first part of the book talks about the king, and I would go further, the king and the city, particularly the city of Jerusalem. This is a Jerusalem-focused book. The first part talks about the king and the city, and the issue of that first part is faith. That's the issue that God is driving home for 39 chapters. The second part moves to a different aspect, not the king and the city, but the servant and the city. This is chapters 40 through 55. And the issue here now is redemption. And finally, in the last 11 chapters, chapters 56 through 66, uh, you have uh, the conqueror and the city. Uh, and the issue in these chapters is the issue of justice. Now, notice that I'm entitling each section after a person, the king, the servant, the conqueror. I'm actually following here uh, the late Irish biblical scholar Alec Motier uh, in his commentary on this book. He was an Anglican minister who became principal of Trinity College, Bristol, uh, and passed away, I think, just a year or two ago. Actually, one of the books I would suggest if you want to do some work in Isaiah, more than just reading the book, uh, this might be the last book he wrote before he passed away. It's called Isaiah Day by, Isaiah by the Day. Isaiah by the Day. And it's actually his own translation of the book. And if you're an egghead, there's translation notes of why he translated it a certain way, which is helpful for pastors. Uh, but then he has a devotional thought at the end from each passage. It's really uh, a lovely book, and he was a wonderful man. Uh, the parish he was a part of at the end of his life actually has a, a page of all of his sermons that you can go back and listen to. Why don't we hold it to the end? Why don't we hold it to the end? Yeah. 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 Yeah
Okay. Um, yeah, but I, I love Motier, and he, he actually is the one uh, who inspired this breakdown of the book in my own mind. Now, it's tempting to say that those three refer to God. And in a sense, that's right. But more specifically, they refer to God's Messiah, the anointed one who would come. And, of course, at the end of the day, that Messiah turns out to be God incarnate. It's helpful to keep this map of the terrain in mind when you're reading the book. I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes after we go a bit deeper, uh, because this book as a whole lays out a stunningly beautiful sketch of the whole history of God's redemption, the whole plan that God has been executing to uh, redeem his fallen creation and restore it to its original glory. But before I kind of sketch that, that's where we're going to end. Let's move down to the thousand-foot view and be a little bit more specific. Let's talk about the first section. The first section really doesn't begin in earnest until chapter 7. There is this prologue at the beginning that covers the first six chapters. Uh, for five chapters, uh, we have what, what if, if this book were the book of Mayor de Blasio, the first five chapters might be the state of the city. And the state of the city, he would have to say, Isaiah would say, is not good. Here's how the book opens. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. So you see this relationship between prophet with God's message. You listen to me, I have the word of God. Quote, God's words. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. End of quotation of God's word. Now here comes Isaiah's preaching of God's word. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on him. Woo! That's page one, right? And this State of the City address goes on for five chapters, with some words of hope interspersed. But it is, uh, it, it culminates in chapter 5 with the song of the vineyard and uh, at the second half of chapter 5 with six woes pronounced on the city of Jerusalem. It's really a stunning way to open the book. But no sooner does Isaiah pronounce woes on the people of Judah, but he himself sees the glory of God and says, woe is me. The prophet is not here this elevated, righteous, I've got it all together, and I've come down from Sinai to tell all of you what's wrong with all of you. The prophet is someone who has come into contact with the thrice holy God himself or herself and puts themselves under the same condemnation. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai, the Lord, high and exalted, Seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
To which Isaiah, of course, cries, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe being a word saying, I'm as good as dead. I'm as good as dead. And then God speaks the forgiving word, right? Your guilt is atoned for. Yes, you are broken. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you do have unclean lips, but this coal has touched your lips, and your sin is forgiven. And then God commissions him for service. It's an amazing opening to the book and offers hope to the sinful nation that God is a God who redeems. That's what sets the stage for this first big section, the first big chunk, the king and the city, which is really chapters 7 through 39 after that prologue. Uh, It breaks down into these four parts, and if if you want this, I I can send you... um, can send you the keynote if, if this is of interest to you. Um, much of what you hear in the first part of the Messiah comes from the book of Emmanuel, chapters 7 through 12. Um, but this is an exposition of, of what the, the true king is like. And as I said at the 10,000 foot view, uh, the issue in these chapters, in this whole section, is the issue of faith. Now, let me illustrate this for you. Uh, I'm not just making this up, but actually this is Isaiah's point in this whole section. Isaiah uses a literary device. It's called inclusio. Inclusio means bookends, okay, or brackets. Uh, Ancient writers would often use this technique where they would introduce something, use a word repeatedly at the beginning... And then when they get to the end of that section, they would come back to that thing so that you would know, oh, here's the other end of the bookend. Here's the other bracket. All of this is about this topic, this issue, even this word. So at the beginning of the section, in chapter 7, when he announces, uh, when he launches into his topic, the king and the city, In chapter 7, he confronts Uzziah's son, Ahaz, or grandson, who is now king. And Ahaz is concerned about Assyria. This is before the north is destroyed. And he's thinking, goodness, Assyria is really strong and they're going to destroy my great city. And so he thinks, I'm going to form an alliance. You know, that's what we do. That's what politicians do. Like, let's form an alliance and... As a team, we'll be able to defend off this stronger power. And Isaiah confronts him in chapter 7 and says, don't do it. Don't join Syria or Aram. Don't join Israel. The one true God has promised, I will defend this city. You don't need the northern kingdom to defend you because God will defend you. In fact, he says, those other nations are unreliable. They're going to be wiped out. Instead, Isaiah tells him, you need to trust God. And here's the word that he gives him. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Isaiah 7, 9. Some identify this as really the key verse of the whole book of Isaiah. I don't know if I'd go quite that far. This is a great verse to to memorize and put on a 3x5 card and stick on your bathroom mirror. Um, He actually uses the same word twice. And it's a word we actually use multiple times today in worship. It's the word Amen. He says, if I can gloss this a little bit, if you do not Amen God, you will not Amen. You you won't be established. 
If you do not declare God to be reliable, you yourself are not going to be reliable. You're going to be wiped out. I actually love the way the NIV reads it here. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. The issue is faith. Will you trust what your eyes see or will you trust what the one true God has said? And tragically, Ahaz trusted what his eyes saw. And again, as I said, that, that's the first part of the bracket. When you get to the end of the first section, it's a new king. It's Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And at first it seems like this first section is going to go out with this triumphant climax. With Hezekiah in chapter 37. Because the Assyrians have now wiped out the north. They've wiped out Syria. They're on the doorstep. And Hezekiah is looking at the situation and it's grim. It's over for us. But what happens? He gets this letter from the field general. He spreads it out before the Lord. He falls on his face and says, God, if you don't deliver us, we have no hope. And what does God do? He slays the enemy army. Miraculously. And the city is saved. God said, I will defend my people. Hezekiah believed. And they won. So it's like, oh, great, we made it. Like, we finally have a king who will trust God. And then in the next chapter, 38, he goes one further because Hezekiah is told, your sickness is going to kill you. You're going to die, get your house in order. And Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and prays, God, please, remember your servant. And Isaiah is literally walking out of the palace And God stops him and says, hang on, I've got a new message for Hezekiah. And he turns back and says, you get 15 more years. And it's like, wow, look at the the faith of this one. Is this the son of David we've been longing for? Look how faithful he is. But then, unfortunately, the section ends not with chapter 38 and these great victories of faith, but in chapter 39, when Hezekiah invites a young upstart nation, the Babylonians, to come into Jerusalem and take a look at how great he is. And God's word to him in chapter 39 is Hezekiah. Isaiah confronts him and he says, Here's the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And one of the most tragic verses in the Bible, right after this, I should have put it on the screen, right after this, Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord is good. Now normally that's a good sentence. But Isaiah tells us what he meant by that. He says, the word of the Lord is good because he thought, during my life, it's going to be peace and security. Never mind my kids or grandkids or whatever. This man of faith is revealed to be just another selfish son of David. Any hope that this was the man of faith or the perfect king of Jerusalem or the long-form Messiah is gone. He's just another ordinary person whose faith goes up and down and who himself is not even a perfect example of faith, much less the long-form Messiah. So the issue in all these chapters is faith. And I will say, this is like the hardest part to read. This part right here, chapters 13 through 27, is challenging terrain. 
Okay. Now some of you are going to say, oh, well then, yeah, I'm going to go after it. Well, go for it. It's, it's, it's rewarding terrain. It's not easy. There's a lot of historical things that like scholars don't even know quite what this is talking about. But this much, go, go into it knowing this much, that in these chapters, the big issue that God is driving home is faith. Faith. Will we trust and obey? And of course, the answer to that question is, no, we won't. Even Hezekiah, who saw this great victory, does not, in the end, trust and obey God. So that brings us to the second major portion of Isaiah, which wrestles with questions of cosmic significance. If God is going to carry his people off to exile because of their faithlessness, as he said to Hezekiah, then is that it? Like, hey, I made a covenant with you. You broke covenant. I told you there are curses coming. Babylon. That's it. We're done. Is that it? Or is God going to redeem his people? And if he is going to redeem his people, how can he be just? How can he be righteous and redeemed and redeem clearly broken people? So section two starts like abruptly. Right after you get this horrible statement about Hezekiah, he's just in it for himself, the next words that come are comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Wow. Like on the heels of chapter after chapter of faithlessness, now a word of hope, a word of comfort. And that's the issue of section two, this issue of redemption. God is going to accomplish redemption. He's going to do it through his servants. So now we move from the king, the focus on the king, to the focus on the servant. And you have basically three sections, subsections in this part. Chapters 40 through 48, this section here, is the longest sustained defense of the uniqueness of God. You actually have in these chapters four legal cases against idolatry. It's a fascinating section. It's it's, it's where you find that thing where it says, consider the, the, uh, the, the craftsman. He takes a log, he cuts it in half, right? Some of it, he makes a fire, warms himself. And some of it, he fashions into an idol and he bows down before it. Like, seriously? God is going after idolatry and he's asserting that he is the one true God. But friends, to redeem his people, God needs to be more than all-powerful. How can he redeem his people and maintain his justice? That's what he addresses in chapters 49 to 55. And that's where we really see the servants coming into full focus. Isaiah's expectation is that someone will come who will accomplish God's redemption. And that someone God identifies is his servant. In these chapters, you have four songs about the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And with each one, at first, you read the first one in chapter 42, and you kind of think, is he talking about the nation of Israel? But with each one, it becomes clearer and clearer. He's not talking about the nation as a whole. 
He's talking about someone. One person who would be the ideal servant that, I, that Israel has failed to be. And of course it culminates in the very famous chapter Isaiah 53. The fourth servant song which really begins at the, chap, at the end of chapter 52. And by that fourth servant song, he's practically screaming the name Jesus. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. That he was pierced, not for his transgressions, he had no transgressions, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, And by his wounds, we are healed. See, this is the gospel, friends. This is why you can start seeing why Isaiah is called the fifth gospel. This is good news. Isaiah's message is not buck up and do better. Isaiah's message is you tried to buck up and you aren't any better. Have no fear, the servant will come. God maintains his justice while redeeming sinful, broken people through his servant. His servant bore in himself what we sinners deserve, and through his wounds it is we who are healed. And though he would be cut off from the land of the living and assigned a grave with the wicked, verses 8 and 9, the servant would not remain in the grave, because even though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see again. He will see again. Have you ever wondered in that story in Luke 24, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples, and he starts going through all the Old Testament, telling them about the places that refer to himself. And specifically, he was proving from the Old Testament that the Messiah had to rise again. He had to die, and he had to rise again. If you ever wondered, like, what passage, what passages was he going to? This is one of them that he could have exposited. Isaiah 53:10. After his life is made an offering for sin, he will see again. And he will prolong his days. That's resurrection life. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Even more clearly, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. And the servant will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. The servant after death would live again. And through the power of his sacrificial death and his bodily resurrection... God's servant will justify many. Is it any wonder, friends, that St. Paul would quote Isaiah more than any other book in the Old Testament? I mean, where is he getting his themes from? Yes, he too was a prophet, a New Testament prophet, who received direct revelation from God. But just as Isaiah received revelation from God that was built on previous revelation in Deuteronomy, so St. Paul is receiving new revelation from God built on the old revelation of Isaiah. He told us what was going to happen. And since the servant has done everything for us, what's left for us to do but sing? Chapter 54. And come. Chapter 55. The servant has done everything. And that's how the second section ends. Which brings us to the third part. And now the question becomes, okay, if the servant does everything for us, well, what now? How then do we live in light of the servant's successful redemption? 
And in this sense, I think Isaiah's book is really a precursor, maybe even a model of what St. Paul and the other writers of New Testament epistles would later do. He ends with a description of how the gospel transforms sinners into saints. You might be familiar with this. Ephesians has six chapters. And the first three chapters are very heavy on doctrine and teaching and theology. And you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and it's like he turns from the doctrine and moves to application. Therefore, based on the gospel, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of this gospel. And then for three chapters, it's exhortation from the gospel, how we live in light of it. The work of the gospel does not end at our conversion. It's transformative and shapes the way we live and act in the here and now while we await God's promises to come to fruition. And so here's Isaiah's pivot. Isaiah 56.1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. When you go through these chapters, you realize that there is an intense focus on justice. Which is ironic, I think, particularly the reasoning of this verse. Because a lot of times people say, hey, we don't have to worry about justice and trying to fix these things. Because someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fix it all. Gloriously, that is true. He will come back. But notice the reasoning here. He doesn't say, don't worry about justice because my justice is coming. He says, precisely because my justice and my kingdom is coming... Right now, you need to be maintaining justice. We are to live now who the gospel has already created us to be. And that's what the whole section is about. How we live up until the end of Isaiah, where he announces the new heavens and the new earth. Amazingly, that's where the book ends, in the eschaton. Isaiah ends precisely where the Bible ends. Revelation 21 and 22. Now as I conclude, let me pull back up to this 10,000 foot view. I said earlier that the book of Isaiah lays out really a stunning sketch of redemption history. Maybe you picked up on it as I walked through these sections. But you have this first section that's very historical from Isaiah's perspective. Like it was happening during his life. And then the second section, which is future to him, but for us, is in the past. Jesus came. Like he was anticipating in the second section, the servant will come. And now we stand here and look back and say, that has happened. This has been fulfilled. The gospel is true. And then there's this third section that for Isaiah was in the future and for us is still future. Do you see it? He's sketching for us the entirety of redemption history. And that first part, the end of the law, that the Mosaic Covenant was never a way that people could be redeemed. It took the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who starts gathering people from all nations, who begin growing in justice, until God brings the new Jerusalem down to earth. Isaiah is a glorious book about a glorious Savior. To him be glory in the church, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. 
All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.